Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Last week we talked about these four red flags. You don't have blanks for these this week. This was from last week, but I just wanted to reiterate. The four red flags when we're talking about false teaching uh, are going to be these. Okay, we can have lots of differences on different doctrines. Remember the theological triage we talked about last week, assessing the importance of the theological difference and uh, if that's worth dividing over, if it makes us Christian or not, and you have to assess where you are on that ladder with the differences. The things that we cannot differ on, uh, with the exception of maybe some nuances on Scripture, the things we cannot differ on are the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Scripture, and the doctrine of salvation. Um, those four tell you immediately if someone is saying something different about those issues, we're talking about a different God, we're talking about a different Jesus, we're not, we don't have the roadmap we need from Scripture, and ultimately we're talking about another gospel. And so when we talked about the Mormons, they used the word God, they used the word Jesus, they used the word Scripture, they used the word salvation. But we saw last week how with every single word, there's a completely different definition for what they mean. God was once a man named Elohim who became a God. Remember, Jesus was his firstborn spirit child. Uh, the Scriptures are the Bible plus the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. Salvation is this thing where everybody gets into some kind of heaven, and then you can kind of work your way up to the biggest heaven, which is, of course, you go get to be your own God. So there's a lot of stuff packed under familiar words. So you have to dig deeper into what they mean. Same thing with tonight's group. The Jehovah's Witnesses will use the word God, Jesus, salvation, scripture. But we're going to see how with each doctrine, they mean something completely different. And so those red flags need to immediately go up. Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know if Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses are more well-known for the door-to-door -door deal. Uh, Mormons are typically the, you know, the two young guys called elders or two young ladies called sisters, and there's some older Mormons that can go do missions too, and they ride around on bikes, typically in some sort of uniform, white shirt, black tie, and have the backpacks. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses can be you know, a guy and a girl, two girls, two guys, and they usually just you know, are from the area, go park their car, and then they just travel around a neighborhood as part of what they're expected to do as Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, what they more than often will present you with if they offer to come to a Bible study with you will be their version of the Bible. We'll talk about that in a minute. But also their main publication, The Watchtower. And we're going to talk about the origins of these things too. I think maybe most infamously, Jehovah's Witnesses are known for believing that only 144,000 people will go to heaven. And that is part of their belief system. We'll talk about what they mean by heaven and only 144,000 people going there. 
Something else they might be infamous for uh, is observing no holidays, and any sort of patriotic ritual or symbolic anything is forbidden. So they are infamously absent from saying the Pledge of Allegiance or singing the national anthem or celebrations of Christmas, birthday, Easter, those kind of things. The version of the Bible that the Jehovah's Witnesses use is their own version that was, quote-unquote, translated in the early 20th century called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. The New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures is actually a very terrible translation. and It's not a translation at all. It's just a sort of perversion of the King James Version to make it say what they want it to say. We'll talk about that in a little while. So that kind of sets the foundation of who the Jehovah's Witnesses are. Now let's dig into a little bit of the history of this movement. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society was started in Warwick, New York, founded by a man named Charles Taze Russell, you can say Charles T. Russell, in 1870 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, That's where Charles is from, that's where he began the Bible study movement, but then quickly moved the headquarters to New York, and the headquarters remain in New York to this day in, in Brooklyn. Now, last week we talked about this movement, um, the Restorationist movement, the Churches of Christ, the Christian Church, all coming out of the Second Great Awakening. Remember that period in American life where uh, tent revivals and massive evangelistic crusades were taking place, and there was a lot of religious interest and religious fervor, but oftentimes that religious fervor and interest was not accompanied by sound doctrine. And so people would have some sort of religious experience, some moment, and then like Joseph Smith reported, didn't know which group to join. Now, you know, what do I do with this? Do I become Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist? You know, which group do I join? And a lot of people were not happy with their choices, as, as was Charles Russell, not happy with his choices. And they had to look elsewhere or start their own thing. And so, like I said last week, you have a lot of denominations and a lot of movements explode in America in the mid-18 to the late 1800s. I mean, thousands of different sects and denominations spring up. One of those is this very broad tent called Restorationism. Uh, Not happy with the traditional denominations. We need to just go back to the New Testament. We just need to be the Christian church, the Church of Christ. No creed but the Bible. That's all we need. And so you have this group that's trying to, quote, unquote, restore primitive Christianity. And that's the story for the churches of Christ, the disciples of Christ, the Christian churches that we know them by, uh, the Latter-day Saints, and also this group called the Adventists. Uh, From a form of Adventism, which just means the return. Advent, you know, we talk about the season of Advent. It's about the coming of Christ. And we kind of do a double emphasis We remember his first coming leading up to Christmas. We also look forward to his second coming. And so Advent is about the coming of the Lord. And so Adventists in the mid-1800s were those who were very concerned with the second coming of Christ, very uh, interested in eschatology and so on. We'll talk about a little bit of that in a minute. Some of those uh, existing Adventist groups today, of course, are the Seventh-day Adventists and others. Jehovah's Witnesses, as we say, as said earlier, reject any form of symbolism as pagan idolatry. So all holidays, birthdays, patriotism, religious symbols, even crosses, logos, things like that. The Jehovah's Witness logo is a very simple blue square with JW, <laughs> JW on it. And sometimes JW.org, you know, for their, uh, their, their thing. But any representation of Jesus, uh, or of, sorry, of Jehovah 
or of uh, a cross or some symbol that would represent their movement is, is forbidden, as is birthdays, holidays, and so on. So Charles Russell actually began his life as a Presbyterian minister, a Presbyterian teacher, pastor, but became dissatisfied with traditional forms of Christianity. Like many of these affected by the Second Great Awakening, there was a renewed interest in the Second Coming. There was a renewed interest to see the world evangelized and people come to know Jesus. That's a good thing. In light of what they felt was the imminent Second Coming of Christ. Um, if any of you are familiar with William Miller and the Millerite movement of the mid 1800s, uh, he was the dude that you know famously was one of the first to to, to specify the day that Jesus would return, and and people sold farms and sold their businesses and all moved up to New York to wait on Jesus to come back. And when he didn't, they called that event the Great Disappointment. And so this that was part of this Adventist movement, awaiting the imminent, what they thought was the immediate imminent return of Jesus. And so in light of that, there were many in traditional denominations who were no longer happy in those traditional denominations. And so Russell, a Presbyterian, dissatisfied with that denomination, formed a small study group of others who felt the same way dissatisfied with the teaching or the preaching or the worship they were getting, looking for something quote-unquote deeper, maybe some, some more stuff that they're not talking about so much in their churches, such as maybe the, the prophetic stuff, end times, uh, charts, and sort of that end times obsession is becoming a thing around this time. And so a lot of groups, their churches aren't talking about that. They're having to go to these independent churches and small groups to talk about those things together. Charles Russell was one of those. Uh, he, he became disillusioned with some other things, too. Uh, he began to question some historic Christian doctrines he claimed had no basis in Scripture. Some of the things Russell had problems with were the doctrine of the Trinity. Russell, the Trinity word is not in the Bible, and so churches should not hold to words that are not in the Bible Never mind that the principle is there, the word Trinity is not there. And so he rejected or toyed around with rejecting the Trinity. It's not officially rejected until a couple decades later. Uh, he didn't like the doctrine of an eternal hell and kind of did away with any, any notion of eternal damnation. He instead liked annihilationism, which means if someone is not a believer or if someone is, quote, damned, it doesn't mean they suffer in hell for eternity. It means that their life, soul, everything is completely annihilated. They no longer exist, period. Okay, that's annihilationism. Seventh-day Adventists, coming from this restorationist movement and this Adventist movement, they hold to this as well. Now, Seventh-day Adventists are not as out there as Jehovah's Witnesses, and depending on how into it they are, they may or may not be considered a cult movement, but they come from this same root. And it's interesting to see some of the similarities. Seventh-day Adventists and modern-day Adventists with Jehovah's Witnesses still reject the idea of an eternal soul and still reject the idea of eternal condemnation or uh, conscious torment in hell. This uh, group is marked by high interest in what we call eschatology. Eschatology just means, it technically means the doctrine of the last things. So it could encompass everything from death, the afterlife, to the second coming, and the resurrection, and the eternal state. 
But for our purposes tonight, what they were really obsessed with and preoccupied with was the end times. Seventh-day Adventists, again, still to this day, very much about their charts and the graphs and the pictures and the, and the interpretation of biblical symbols, as are Jehovah's Witnesses. Russell and others predicted what we would call a sort of rapture in 1878. It kind of became the Adventist thing to do to <laughs> set a date for Christ's return. And at first, I mean, and the Jehovah's Witnesses are infamous for saying it's going to be 1864, 1878, 1914, and they kind of kept moving the ball. Every time it didn't happen, of course, they would explain it away saying, well, you know, it, it was this invisible move of Jesus from the outer sanctuary to the inner sanctuary in heaven. That's what it really was. Or he really did return in this kind of invisible spirit form and this revival that's going to happen. And Ad, the Seventh-day Adventists did a lot of the same stuff. A lot of the Adventists did. Uh, but Russell and others predicted a sort of rapture where Jesus would return sort of secretly in the air and catch away believers to rule and reign with him in heaven. Uh, of course, that didn't happen. At least Russell said, obviously, it didn't happen in 1878, though it might have happened spiritually, right? This is one of the earliest publications of the Watchtower, uh, technically called the Watchtower, the Herald of Christ's Presence, from the very beginning of the Jehovah's Witness study group movement, because they haven't adopted the Jehovah's Witness name yet. That won't happen for a few decades. But from the very beginning of the Zion's Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, the Watchtower was their guiding star for interpreting Scripture. The first edition was published in 1879, and the point of this uh, periodical, as it says, is to herald Christ's return. The Watchtower, it's the picture of the prophet uh, Ezekiel as he talked about the man on the watchtower sounding the alarm and we're sounding the alarm heralding Christ's return warning people to turn from God's judgment and to be saved before the end times come though what the watchtower becomes is a supplement to scripture uh, really an addition to scripture it becomes a thing that Jehovah's Witnesses are encouraged and really commanded to read side by side with the Bible as equal authorities, and that the Bible cannot be read or interpreted correctly aside from the teaching of the Watchtower magazine, which is the teaching of what they call the governing body, their central governing uh, body. From 1879, Watchtower supporters began to gather as self-governing congregations. So you see that the sort of evolution from independent study groups, though they're members of different churches, to now these individual study groups beginning to question some historic Christian doctrines and adopting some stranger views on some things. They shift from independent study groups, members of other churches, to self-governing churches themselves, um, independent sort of uh, autonomous congregations within themselves. And from the very beginning, exhibited expansive missions and evangelism efforts through the publication of the Watchtower, other tracts, their printing of the New World Translation a few decades later. From the very beginning, they were very, uh, and, and is fitting for their belief, right, that Jesus is coming soon. It's going to happen soon. And so there's this urgency there. 
something we might, you know, could learn from. You look at these groups and you say, well, there's this is really bad and terrible and wrong, but we see an urgency in evangelism, both with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, that, that kind of shames, I think, evangelicals who have the true gospel and also who believe that Jesus is coming soon. Let's talk a little bit about their organization. Uh, the headquarters moves to Brooklyn in 1909, so from where Russell was in Warwick, New York, to where he founded the group in Pittsburgh, now moves to Brooklyn, New York in 1909, and is originally known as the International Bible Students Association. The International Bible Students Association. Well, before the movement really takes off as what we know it as the Jehovah's Witnesses, Russell, Charles T. Russell, dies in 1916. Now, if you know your history, that is the year that World War I ends. And you can't help but put your place, put your mind in the place of these people that lived through the Civil War and then saw the World War I and then maybe even saw parts of World War II. Uh, you can't help but sort of put yourself there and understand where they're coming from thinking this has got to be the end. I mean, the world is coming apart. But with the Civil War and the World War I, I mean, those, those have all the markings if you're looking for it. And if you're interpreting the Bible in that way, I mean, it's easy to see Armageddon. It's easy to pick out antichrist-type figures. And so it's understandable why these people's eschatology forms the way it does. And so when Charles Russell dies in 1916, along with the end of World War I, you sort of have a lot of stuff being packed into these Bible students' brains that is saying this has got to be significant. This has got to be a sign. The World War ends. Our leader dies. You know, what's next? Joseph Franklin Rutherford becomes the second leader of this international Bible students movement, and he was elected as president of the movement in 1917. It was a contentious election. It was close. There were several recounts, but uh, Franklin Rutherford, who was considered uh, more of a radical for the group, um, and you had, it's, it's always like this when you have a founder. You can look back at the reformers and see that, you know, Luther was the founder, but Melanchthon really took what Luther taught and codified it and, and, and really pushed it. Uh, there was John Calvin in Switzerland, but then he had a student named Theodore Beza who really took what Calvin taught and systematized it and pushed it. And so that's what Franklin and Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, you kind of have the same thing here with uh, Charles Russell and Joseph Franklin Rutherford, who really takes some of those things that Russell was maybe toying around with, Trinity, hell, the eternal soul, those kind of things, and he pushes them and they become part of the doctrine of the, uh, the Jehovah's Witness movement. It wasn't, uh, so contentious election. Um, another thing that, Je that Franklin Rutherford did was to consolidate power. So uh, kind of coming away from this sort of local, autonomous, self-governing, congregational view, uh, there's a consolidation of power into what would be called the governing body, which still governs the Jehovah's Witness to this day. So Franklin Rutherford takes all of the sorts of these independent little congregations, forms them sort of into this one, this one movement, calls them for the first time Jehovah's Witnesses, and now he himself is sort of the leader, the, the pope for this group, if you will, at the top. And from that change in their organization comes all the issues with authority that we have with the Jehovah's Witnesses to this day. 
where the teaching, the authority, the interpretation, the translation, the doctrine, the theology all comes from that leading body, the governing body. Along with that, as I said, were the doctrinal changes. Things that Russell uh, toyed around with are now codified by uh, Joseph Franklin Rutherford and this new batch of now Jehovah's Witnesses. Another part and a significant part of their history is the publication of the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures in the year 1942. And as I said earlier, uh, uh, many of the men that were working on this supposed translation were not Greek scholars. They might have known some Greek. Uh, Many of them were not seminary trained or theologically trained at all. And they might have known some Greek, but they were not Greek scholars. What they do with the New World Translation of the Scriptures, if you can ever get your hands on it and look through it, it's interesting. I do have some, or one, in my office. Um, What they do is basically take the existing King James Bible, and with every mention of the word Yahweh, or Lord, capital L-O-R-D, they will supplement the word Jehovah, which we'll talk about in a minute. They believe God, that's God's true only name. And you shouldn't call him anything else but Jehovah. And so there's that change, along with some other changes. I think one of the most infamous changes in the New World Translation is John 1.1. When you look at John 1.1 in every English Bible, except for this one, it will say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? The New World Translation, and we'll talk about why they do this, they say... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and they insert the word A, little g, God. Just the insertion of that one character changes everything, doesn't it? Not in the beginning was the Word who was with God and was God, but now he was with God and was a God, little g, which they believe to be an angelic, mighty being, but not capital G, Jehovah, God. We'll talk about that in a minute. There is no... Greek scholar alive today or then that would have said you have any right to add that word in. What they argue is that in the original Greek language, instead of having the article the, definite article, the God, instead of having that with the word was the God, there's no article at all, which they say gives them the right to just put in the indefinite article a Every Greek scholar, which I'm not, but I've read them, every Greek scholar says what you do with the definite article is if there's not one in that phrase, but one precedes it, then you supplement it there. And so there's no reason any Greek scholar worth their salt says you should be able to insert the word A. But it fits with their theology, and as with many of the changes they made, terrible changes that are not a translation, it's just a perversion of the scripture to suit their own teachings, which we'll talk about in a minute. Jehovah's Witnesses today report nearly 8 million members worldwide, and of any quote-unquote Protestant, which I wouldn't consider them, but the, sort of the world does, uh, Protestant movement has the largest publication and evangelism efforts in the world. As all of their members at every congregation are expected to put in a certain amount of hours visiting or what they call witnessing a week. 
It's expectation, and if you don't do it, you can be removed from the congregation, or what they would call shunned from the congregation. So let's talk briefly about the, the, the red flag doctrines we talked about earlier. I've already mentioned this one. Uh, God is properly known as Jehovah, which alone is his correct name and title. Now there's lots of opinions on where the word Jehovah comes from. There's some who say it's sort of a mixture of the Hebrew substitute for Yahweh, which they just would say Adonai, or they might say Hashem, which means the name. And some say that it's a mixture of those two words, taking out some consonants, adding some vowels, that gives you the word Jehovah. What well, makes a little more sense to me, and I'm not you know, a, a, an expert at this, is that you have the Hebrew, what you call the tetragrammaton, which is just those four letters right down there in the bottom left, uh, which is what we see in the Old Testament as the covenant name for God. There are no vowels in Hebrew, so what you have there are what would be equivalent to our consonants Y-H-W-H. And so depending on how you would say that, might be Yahweh or just Yehoah. But when you're German and you insert a German vernacular into that, your Y's become J's and your W's become V's. And so you can see how Yehoah or Yahweh becomes Jehovah. So at the end of the day, no matter what they want to say about anything else, God's name cannot probably be Jehovah because Jehovah is at best a poor translation of the word Yahweh. God did not ever say at any time, my name is Jehovah. He said, my name is however he would have pronounced Yahweh to Moses, I am that I am. Uh, it never was Jehovah. So there's automatically a false, a false teaching there from the beginning. They insist that God's name is... Nothing wrong with calling God Jehovah. It's a fine transliteration of the word. Where they go wrong is saying, that is God's absolute only name that you should call him. And uh, that's what often false teachers do, is they take something that's relatively true and just take it to the extreme. Jehovah, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, is the universal sovereign and is God alone. Therefore, what Charles Russell had issues with in the Trinity becomes codified in the Jehovah's Witness doctrine to say that the Trinity is a pagan doctrine that is blasphemous. Jehovah alone is God. The Father God is God alone. Jesus is not God. The Son is not God. The Holy Spirit is not God. Only Jehovah is God. Okay, so what about Jesus? Now, if Jesus is not God, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is the first and the only direct creation of Jehovah. So like the early heretic Arius taught, if you know, you know Arianism and the Council of Nicaea there in the 300s, um, Jehovah's Witnesses pick up with that as well and say, well, Jesus is not God because Jesus is not eternal. The Son is not eternal. The Son was the first creation of the Father. Very glorious and majestic and mighty, but created nonetheless. So Jesus is creator only by proxy in that Jehovah creates everything else through Jesus. Jesus becomes the instrument of Jehovah's creation, but he himself is not the creator. Only Jehovah is the creator. 
his first and only direct creation is the Son, Jesus, whereby he then creates everything else. When the early church was dealing with that very same heresy in the 300s, the heresy of Arianism, that the Son is not God, but was a creation of God and is less than God. When the church answered that at the Council of Nicaea with the Nicene Creed, that's why if you go read the Nicene Creed, you'll see the words that the Son is God of God, true God of true God, that he is begotten, but he is not made. He is proceeding from the Father, but he has no origin and no beginning point because he is also true God of true God. That was the historic, orthodox, traditional answer of who Jesus is, and Jehovah's Witnesses reject that, saying he was a creation. Though Jesus is a mighty angelic being, he is not God, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus' death, likewise, was a ransom sacrifice for the sins of man. And we look at that word and we say, well, that's true. Yeah, he was a ransom. The Bible uses that word. Nothing wrong with the word ransom as long as we define it correctly. Um, you'll notice the picture there on your notes of Jesus, uh, Jehovah's Witness Jesus, and he's dying on uh, a stake. And for some reason, they're very insistent upon this. I don't I think it's just their beef with the symbol of the cross and using that symbol that fueled this. And certainly people were crucified in Rome on stakes, but more often than not, it was a cross beam that was used. But for some reason, they're very insistent that Jesus died on a stake. That when the Bible says cross, it means stake or tree. Uh, nobody, nobody really believes that historically. There were some instances, like I said, most of the time it was a cross beam that might have looked like our cross or, or just a plus sign or a T or something like that. But that's one of their sticking points. And so whenever you see Jesus depicted in Jehovah's Witness literature, uh, it will look like that. The doctrine of Scripture, the Bible is the inspired and errant infallible Word of God, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, but it needs to be translated correctly. And what they mean by that is you need to use our version, the New World Translation. And you, cannot, you often see how cults do this and false teachers do this. Didn't the Mormons do that? The Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. That's in their statement of faith. And what do they mean by that? In addition to the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the ongoing revelation of the church. Jehovah's Witnesses are much the same way. You need the New World Translation, and in addition to that, you need the watchtower there beside you with the teaching, teachings of the governing body that you may not interpret on your own or outside of. The watchtower and official Jehovah's Witness publications, then, are the ultimate authority when reading and interpreting the Bible. The Watchtower and official Jehovah's Witness publications are the ultimate authority when reading and interpreting the Bible. So the Watchtower is, in a sense, ongoing revelation. Although they don't necessarily talk about dreams and visions and revelations in that way, the governing body is seen as prophetic in that it is the sole authority for governing the teaching and interpretation of Jehovah's Witnesses. You may not go outside of those bounds. Okay? Uh, in fact, they call the watchtower the mouthpiece and prophet of Jehovah and see it as absolutely necessary for correctly interpreting Scripture. 
The doctrine of salvation. I'm going to go very quickly through the rest of this because I want to get to one closing thought and, uh, and we'll, we'll be done. When they mention the ransom, they mean that Jesus died as a perfect man, nothing more. Not God, remember. It's not the God man. It's just a perfect, sinless man. He died for sinful men in what they would call equivalency. There is no substitutionary sacrifice, only an exchange. So in the ransom view, the exchange, you see ransom, exchange, that's often what we mean by that. Adam was a perfect man who failed. Jesus is just like Adam, a perfect man who did not fail. So whereas Adam, a perfect man who failed, brought death and sin into the world, Jesus, a perfect man and nothing more, dies the death that Adam deserved. And so Jehovah's Witnesses believe that instead of covering the sins of humanity in some sort of substitutionary atonement, suffering the wrath of God for the sins of his people, instead of that, they say it was just an exchange for the failure of Adam. So basically, the atonement doesn't secure salvation for anyone, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. There really is no it is finished about it. It only sort of resets the clock and gives us another chance. Does that make sense? There's not a payment for sin that takes place. There's only an exchange for the life and the failure of Adam, where now we have a chance to do better for ourselves under Christ. According to Jehovah's Witnesses, accepting Jesus' ransom and being baptized by a witness, nothing else, constitutes conversion and you become part of God's literal kingdom. So when we say kingdom in the church, we don't, I mean, it's literal, but what they mean is like there's a literal kingdom like fortress castle thing in heaven uh, that is going to come and I believe in the new Jerusalem the new creation all that stuff Uh, but when we talk about the kingdom of God what we mean biblically is his rule his authority and his power that is accompanied with those other physical things that will happen when Jehovah's Witnesses talk about this though you're becoming part of this sort of literal militant kingdom Uh, in addition to that um, good works they say flow from true faith but when you ask about which works they would of course say moral living membership in the Jehovah's Witness congregation only would constitute salvation preaching or that's witnessing going door to door which they're required to do and obedience to the watchtower and governing body so we agree in this sense that we believe works are the fruit of true salvation that's what we believe works don't save you but works are the fruit of true salvation. We agree with that. But when you say, what works? Well, the ones that we tell you, the ones that the Watchtower publication and the governing body tell you, the preaching, the hours you put in, all of those things contribute to your salvation and really verify your salvation. So they might deny on face value salvation by works, but if you don't have those specific works, then they would say you are not saved. So it's a little bit of a nuanced thing they try to do there, but once you really dig into it, it is salvation by works because it has to be those specific assigned works, those specific assigned hours, and so on. According to Jehovah's Witnesses, there is no immortal soul 
man is simply sort of this combination of body, soul, spirit, however they want to divide it. And when the body dies, you, you die, and you're not conscious. Uh, so there's, there's no conscious after-death experience for Jehovah's Witnesses or Adventists, including Seventh-day Adventists, who also teach what we call soul sleep, that the soul is asleep, unconscious, really not even there until the resurrection. And when the body comes back, there's your consciousness, and you're aware and alive once again. Okay? So no eternal soul, no immortal soul, no conscious afterlife experience until the resurrection. So when they say, what do we mean you know, 144,000 people go to heaven? And we hear that and we say, well, <laughs> hope you're one of them. <laughs> what they mean is that only 144,000 people will reign with Christ as what they say in Revelation is kings and priests. That 144,000 only ascend to reign with Jesus and Jehovah in the kingdom. That literal kingdom up there somewhere. While everyone else who is saved, Jehovah's Witnesses, will live forever here on a paradise earth. Now again, something we believe at the end of time, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. I have no reason to think it will be anywhere else than here. And God will remake creation the way it was supposed to be. And we will rule and reign with Christ and God here. Um, but they take it to another level in that there's this kingdom. And then there's this other thing up there. 144,000 go there. The rest of us go here. So not all Christians will reign with Christ forever. Only some Select Jehovah's Witnesses. The rest of them will be here on earth. The wicked are completely destroyed. There is no eternal hell. Again, that's that annihilationism. All right, I'm going to go through this very quickly. We did a lot of this last week with uh, the Mormons. uh, A lot of the same material, but just to reiterate. We know that this is another gospel because the Bible teaches us that Jesus was not created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and regardless of what they say, the translation should be, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh. And it was that Word who was with God and who was God, who John says created all things, and who is himself life and light. No one else but God could be life and light. No creature could be called creator, because he would himself be creature. Jesus is equal with God. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count that equality with God as something to be selfishly held on to. Philippians says he becomes a man. John 1.14 says, and that word who was with God and who was God became flesh. Jesus is God enfleshed, God incarnate. Furthermore, Jesus teaches very clearly in John chapter 3 that we must all be born again. Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, only those 144,000 need to be born again. Why? Because Jesus says that's what you need to see the kingdom. And not all Christians are going to the kingdom. Only those going there need to be born again. Jesus means if you're going to have eternal life, you need to be born again. And no one is saved who is not born again and vice versa. There's only one salvation. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses 
you know, like to have these little tears, as Mormons did, right? They had the, the paradise earth thing and the, the celestial thing, and then, and then the Mormons have the celestial kingdom, the celestial and terrestrial. The Bible says there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one salvation. It's from sin, it's for God, from God, and by God, and we're going to be with him forever. And the biggest part of that salvation and our doctrine, biblical doctrine, is that Jesus bore our sin. It wasn't just an exchange for Adam's mess up. He bore our sin, Peter says, in his body on the tree. Isaiah says he was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. There was an exchange that took place. Uh, Romans says Jesus was put forth as a propitiatory sacrifice, substitutionary, uh, satisfying the wrath of God for the sins of his people. The Bible is clear that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, only in what Christ has done for us, not anything that we can do for ourselves. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that there is a conscious afterlife. Jesus talked about it often, especially in his parables and in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, which may or may not be a parable. It's there. And Jesus doesn't say here's a parable, but there's this instance of a conscious afterlife. Hell is pictured as eternal. In the book of Revelation, it says the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever and ever. The smoke of their torment rises forever. In the very next chapter, it talks about unbelievers in the same way being thrown into the same lake of fire and their torment Uh, The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Jesus talks about the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched. Uh, These are all pictures in the Bible of an eternal conscious hell. And maybe most precious of all in this, God will dwell with us. There will not be a separate class of saints who get to be with God and some who are, you know, here on paradise earth. And when, when God talks about the new creation, he says, I make all things new. I will be with them and I will be their God. They will be my people and I will dwell in the midst of them and no more tears and no more death and all of those wonderful things we think about heaven. So lastly, speak the truth. Um, study, listen, and understand before engaging in debate. Your goal is to communicate the gospel, not to win an argument. Now I want you to write down two portions of scripture. I do not have time to turn here and to, to, to go through all this with you. I want to, but I can't. <laughs> Just write down these two scriptures. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. After we read about Jesus' humiliation and his becoming subject to the point of death, even the death on the cross, you know the rest. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So write down uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And then you need to write down Isaiah 45. I think it's 25 through 26. But it's in Isaiah 45. Paul, what now? Isaiah 45. I think it's 25 through 26. But it's definitely chapter 45. Paul in Philippians 2 is quoting from Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, if you make the Jehovah's Witness person read Isaiah 45 and you ask them who is talking, they're going to tell you this is Jehovah talking. And Jehovah says to me, 
every tongue will swear and every person will swear allegiance to me. Paul is citing that very scripture when he talks about Jesus in Philippians 2. And it's exactly the same meaning. To Jesus, who is what? The name above every name. And what is that name except the name of Yahweh? He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah incarnate. To Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Uh, I did that at the door in Florida one time. Jessica got, um, she was getting ganged up on out there by two Jehovah's Witness ladies. I brought that scripture out and uh, their hips started hurting really quick and they had to leave. Isaiah 45, Philippians 2. And here's the thing. Anytime Paul talks about uh, an Old Testament scripture and uses the word Lord and applies it to Jesus, he is calling Jesus Yahweh. Another important one is Romans, uh, quoting from Joel 2, uh, Romans 10.9 or 10.13, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, calling Jesus, uh, will be saved. So uh, look at those things, uh, do some research on your own and be ready to uh, witness to the truth of the gospel to our Jehovah's Witness friends. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and uh, his eternal co-equal Godhead with you and the Holy Spirit. We give you thanks for salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and what Christ has done, laying his life down for us sinners, taking the payment of our sin so that we might trust in him and have life eternal with you uh, forever. God, bless us as we go. Give us strength and boldness to proclaim your truth in the lost world. Uh, Help us to be the lights to the gospel that you've called us to be. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.